Thank you for downloading the Bristol Lectures podcast, brought to you by the University of the West of England. In this podcast, we are joined by Arabelle Bailey, Accenture. Hi, my name's Nick Sturge. Uh, I'm here representing the Institute, Institute of Directors, uh, the Institute uh, with the Royal Charter to professionalise not only directors themselves, but the role of directors for the benefit of the UK uh, economy. I also run Engine Shed in central Bristol and the Set Squared uh, Business Incubator within that. <coughs> So our speaker tonight, my job is to introduce our, our speaker tonight, uh, Arabelle Bailey, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, the interesting fact that, that I learned tonight is that Arabelle is an adopted Bristolian uh, and uh, lives in central Bristol, so that's fantastic. Um, so uh, Arabelle joined Accenture in uh, 1991, having graduated from the University of Manchester with a degree in uh, maths and uh, management science, um, and then joined Accenture as an analyst and then moved up to managing director. She's held her current role as MD for UK and Ireland uh, of innovation and consulting services for the last five years, responsible for helping clients maximise their return on innovation investments. Arabella is also passionate about uh, diversity in the workplace and supporting inclusion and flexible working arrangements. She's written in the Huffington Post I'm sure you're all avid readers of that, on the specific topic of managing a thousand staff, three children, whilst working part-time. Well worth a read, uh, and a lot to be um, admired there. And in that vein, she's been named one of, one of the top 50 power part-timers, and highlighted as uh, one of the top 25 women redefining the workspace. Workplace, sorry. Uh, and shortlisted twice as Digital Leader of the Year at the Women in IT Awards. So Arabelle's going to talk to us about surviving and thriving in a disrupted world. And my, isn't it a disrupted world that we live in? And this is a very interesting topic for, for me personally. Uh, on one hand, um, innovation uh, in businesses at the heart of the work that, that I do, uh, with, typically with technology uh, startups, most of whom sell to other businesses rather than to consumers. And so the role of uh, disrupting technologies in larger businesses is something which I'm quite close to, and the difficulty in getting large organizations to change, whether it's through technology or, or, or people. So that disruption uh, is, is um, quite a challenge. Secondly, with my IOD hat, the hat on, the role of the director uh, of an organization, or the trustee, depending on the type of organization, in identifying the need for change and then implementing that change. For me, the directorship, the leadership of an organization is key to enabling that change. So it'd be interesting to hear uh, Arabelle's thoughts on that. And finally, I'm doing some work on productivity. So how do you make organizations more productive? And uh, the, the role of the, the people in the business is, is key to that. So I'm sure we'll hear some perspectives on that. So without further ado, please uh, join me in welcoming Arabelle Bailey. Thank you very much um, for that lovely introduction. So must all good things come to an end? In today's business environment, it certainly feels like maybe they do need to. Take the FTSE 100 as an example. When Marks and Spencers dropped out of the FTSE 100 in September this year, 
That meant that the number of organisations of that original 100 had dropped down to just 27. The FTSE was only launched 35 years ago, which means in that intervening period, 73 companies have dropped out. Across the pond in the US, between the years of 2011 and 2018, over 3,000 companies have gone bankrupt. <coughs> the scary thing is all of those businesses were being led by really smart leaders who worked hard, you know, they did their homework, they recruited well, they invested more in innovation um, than, than we've seen in recent times. And so how is it that these business leaders, smart people who are following the rules, could still fail in, business, in their business ventures? I'll tell you why. It's because the rules of business are changing. Tonight, I'm going to talk to you about three things. I'm going to talk to you about the increasing levels of disruption that we're seeing in the marketplace. I'm going to talk to you about the need for organizations to pivot what they do, and I'll explain what I mean by that. And I'm going to talk about innovation. And most importantly, what organizations need to do for innovation to thrive. And so I'll start by talking about disruption. In Accenture, we did some research last year, and we surveyed 3,500 um, companies across 82 different countries, 20 different industry sectors. And what we were looking at is the levels of current disruption in each of those industry sectors, and what we called the susceptibility to future disruption, so where we thought the future disruption would come from. And we looked at a whole load of financial indicators that would help us assess this. So we looked at the financial performance of the incumbents in any of those industries. So we looked at things like you know, revenue growth, profit levels, volatility of results, levels of corporate bankruptcy. We looked at the presence of disruptors in each of those industries. So we looked at how many startups were entering into those industries and the flows of venture capital into each one. We looked at the levels of innovation in the incumbent countries, companies. So we looked at you know, investment levels. We looked at the numbers of successful digital transformations. And we looked at natural industry um, defences. So the strength of incumbent brands, um, natural barriers to entry, and the level of regulation that can put off new startups. And our researchers took all of those different factors and they put them in a sort of special blender and they came up with something that they called the disruptability index. And there's a whole load of detail in the report and some of the, the findings vary by industry, by sector, by country. Um, but what we found is when you look at disruption in quite a scientific way and you try and codify it in the way that we did, actually levels of disruption are far more predictable than we ever thought was possible. <laughs> And it's predictable much earlier in the cycle than we thought was possible. And so if organisations know that disruption is coming, then they have an opportunity to plan sooner and be ready for that disruption before it hits them and they become yet another one of these has-been companies that I talked about at the start. But almost more than that, it was the conclusion of the whole report that really stuck with me. Because the conclusion of the report said that disruption 
is happening in every industry and that disruption is now both continual and inevitable. So essentially, this is the new normal. This is the new way um, of doing business in a disrupted world. The other thing that we found is that levels of corporate spending on innovation were up. They've never been higher. But yet the returns on those investments were, were really not being made. And the levels of corporate bankruptcy were still on the increase. Now, sometimes disruption is fairly brutal and, and kind of absolute and complete. And those are some of the flagship examples that we see. So this would be the, the blockbusters, the Nokias, um, the Kodaks of this world. But far more common in terms of what we see is what we call compressive disruption. And this is the idea that, that disruption and competition is coming in to an organisation from all sides. So, of course, you've got all of your traditional competition. You've got the tech giants who are threatening um, in almost every industry. And then you've got what we call the attack of the ants. So you've got all of these new nimble players that are coming into the, each industry and going after different elements of, of your revenue streams. And business leaders will often look at their traditional competition and they see that everybody is being impacted in the same way. And so it just becomes kind of normalised. You know, it's just market conditions. This is just how things are. And so by the time they realise they've actually got a problem, it can be too late. And yesterday's announcement, my mother care, is, I think, you know, just yet another kind of sad but, but actually ultimately unsurprising example of exactly what I'm talking about. Now, it can help to, to kind of bring this to life a bit with an example. So imagine you're on the executive leadership team of one of the high street banks. So it wasn't that long ago when all of your competition would have been coming from the other high street banks. So if you're an executive in Lloyd's, you'd be looking at RBS or NatWest, HSBC and Barclays. And you'd all have fairly similar benchmarks in terms of what you would be looking at. You'd be looking at similar revenue growth levels. You could be looking at similar levels of profitability. You'd be looking at similar um, cost benchmarks. And you'd all have the same issues that came from the um, financial crash, some to a greater or lesser extent. And, you know, it probably felt quite tough. But with the benefit of hindsight, it actually looks a lot more straightforward. Because now, if you're one of those banking executives, you've still got to compete with all of your old adversaries, the ones I mentioned. But you've got increasing competition now coming in from all sides. You've got all the new challenger banks going after your current account business, so the Monzos and the Starling banks of the world. You've got TransferWise, who've gone after your FX market. You've got peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms like Ratesetter and Funding Circle. You've got Oak North starting to offer mortgages. And you've got Facebook talking about launching Libra, their digital currency. You've got Uber providing banking services for their drivers. You've got Amazon continuing to develop financial products that will do anything, you know, they'll really do anything to help keep people into the Amazon ecosystem. Research that we did last year showed that 14% of banking revenues in the UK now are going to new starters, uh, to, to new entrants. And they're actually taking over a third of new revenue. 
Leading challenger banks now have over a million customers and 15 fintechs now have their own banking licenses. So new entrants can no longer be ignored as these little irritants. They're now a force to be reckoned with. So do you see what I mean about, you know, a few years ago, actually with hindsight, it was quite a simple place to be. And don't think that it's just traditional businesses that need to be thinking this way. If I were to mention Netflix, you're probably all subscribers to Netflix, and you probably think of them as a relatively new TV on demand streaming service. And in that business model, they have been incredibly effective. They've got 190 million subscribers now globally, and they operate in 41 countries. And so it's easy to forget that they actually didn't start as a streaming business at all. They started as a DVD mail rental um, business, a sort of US equivalent to Love Film. And they started as long ago as 1997. You know, to me, they still feel like a very recent company. And they're widely credited with being the company that put Blockbuster out of business. And really, all they did was just figure out a more convenient and customer-friendly and customer-centric way of renting DVDs. They didn't actually start offering on-demand streaming until 10 years later, when it became technically feasible. And they didn't start making their own content until 2013. So for me, Netflix is an incredible story of a business you know, continuing to disrupt itself and to reinvent itself as technology advances enable new services. And yet, it remains to be seen if they've done enough. The big content giants um, like Disney and HBO are now waking up to the fact that they should be competing in this market and they're launching their own streaming services which means they'll be pulling their content um, from Netflix. And Apple has now announced its own streaming service and they'll be making their own original content. New subscriber numbers at Netflix were lower than expectation uh, last quarter and the share price is now under pressure because of all of this increasing um, competitive threat on all sides. Remember the conclusion from the research. Disruption is happening in every industry, and it's continual and inevitable. So what should businesses do? Well, this is where I'll talk about my second point, um, what we call in Accenture the wise pivot. So let me explain what I mean by that. At the very simplest level, we think about businesses in kind of two parts. And actually, regardless of industry, we find that those, this model generally applies, albeit the implementation can be quite different. So firstly, you have the core business. And this is the main business model that has got the organisation to where it is today. And most of the people in the organisation, and particularly the leaders, have got to where they are by delivering whatever it is that they deliver. And the organization's structure has been designed and optimized around that business model. And so that's the core. And of course, it's fundamental to any business. But then we think about, okay, but what is the new in any sector? The ways of technology that we've seen maturing over the last few years are like nothing I've seen in my nearly 30 years in the IT industry. And those waves enable organizations to deliver new products and services 
Think of Netflix using the rollout of broadband to deliver that new streaming service. But they also allow new entrants to come into the market and compete in markets that historically would have had very high barriers to entry. And so every business is under pressure to think about where their new growth is going to come from. And that pivot that I talked about is really the speed with which any business starts to shift its investment profile from investing in the core business to investing in the new. And while it's very simple to talk about that conceptually, it's actually much harder in practice. Because these are the tough management decisions that are being made by management teams every day about where to allocate limited investment funds. And it's tough to get right. The news is full of stories about companies um, that have not made that shift fast enough. Mothercare would be a, a great example. But it can also be damaging to go too early and be ready for a market that just doesn't exist yet. And that's why we call it the wise pivot, because the timing is crucial and it needs to be done really consciously and carefully. So let me give you an example of what I mean. Think about the car industry. Now, the core business of car manufacturers is making petrol and diesel cars for personal ownership or leasing models. And really, that hasn't fundamentally changed in the last 100 years. And while there's been an awful lot of talk in the media about us reaching this sort of peak car, um, the US car sales actually still remain surprisingly strong, and they tend to be a good indicator um, for other markets. And so it's clear that the core business is still very important and will be for a number of years to come as a, a revenue and profit generator. But while analysts disagree about the timing of the peak, no one is saying that it won't happen. Driving licence registrations amongst young people have been declining for years, and so it's inevitable that car ownership will decline. So there's significant disruption to come. Firstly, there's a lot going on in the core business. The industry is investing in electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles and all the technologies that underpin these. So be it more natural user interfaces that you have in the car, be it all the sensors that you need to make autonomous vehicles a, a safe reality, albeit the electric battery um, technology that we'll need to make electric vehicles you know, really suitable for every type of journey and not just the daily commute. But then, of course, they also need to be thinking about what will the future of transportation look like? Will people even own cars in the future? Or in fact, will most journeys be taken in some sort of pay-as-you-go model um, based on some extension of the sort of lift-sharing platforms that we see today, so the, the kind of Ubers and Lyfts of the world? What will the role of the car manufacturer be in that world? And crucially, where will the money be made? So that's what I mean about when I talk about the new, and it's this balance of investing in the core business to be constantly improving how you make cars, how efficiently you can do it, how cheaply you can do it, whilst also investing in the new to be ready for whatever this uncertain future may hold. 
And that brings me on to my third point, which is about innovation. <coughs> Most organisations are seeing innovation as a essential tool to deal with disruption and to help them with this pivot of their business. Innovation can be applied to the core business um, to drive efficiency and help free up investment capital. And it can also be applied to the new. But innovation can be a bit esoteric and intangible as a topic. What does it even mean, innovation? And how do you make innovation successful in a traditional organisation? So I lead Accenture's innovation team in the UK. And when I took on that role, I thought it would be quite a good idea to have a really snappy definition um, of what innovation is. Uh, and so I Googled it. And there are loads of definitions of innovation. But I spent some time you know, picking and choosing what I thought was the best. And actually, the longer I've done the role, the more I like it, because I see how important every part of the definition is. Um, so my definition of innovation is the process of driving new ideas that deliver value. The process of driving new ideas that deliver value. And I like every word in this definition, and I particularly like the fact that the word technology doesn't appear. Because while an awful lot of innovation today is technology-enabled and technology-driven, it's not an essential part of innovation. So I like the fact that process is in this definition, because in our research, over half the respondents that we spoke to saw innovation as a kind of ad hoc creative process. And it's really not. Of course, there's an ideas generation part of innovation, and that's very creative, but that's not the whole. I like the word driving, because innovation is something that needs to be sort of pushed along and managed. Writers will tell you it's no good to sit around and just wait for inspiration. You have to work at it. You have to sweat it. And sometimes it doesn't come, but you keep working anyway, pushing along. And then eventually it does. And when it does, in writing or in business, value is created. And actually, for me, the driving part of this definition also has some implication there about getting to scale, because scaling innovations is critical if you're going to get the value. The new ideas part, I think, is kind of obvious. I think there has to be some element of newness um, for something to be considered innovative. But then the driving value part is essential, and it's amazing how many definitions don't have the value piece in it. For me, it's the difference between just kind of cool ideas, you know, just because we can, um, and ideas that genuinely solve some customer pain point um, and therefore have a chance of being adopted. And then value is the payoff. So that's what innovation means to me. But the bigger question, as I said, is how do you make innovation successful? Particularly in a traditional organisation. We know that spending on innovation is increasing. It's almost at an all-time high. 3.2 trillion, trillion US dollars were spent globally on innovation over the last five years. 
but many, many companies are failing to convert that investment into value. So why is that? Well, that question's been bothering us for a while. And so we've done some research very recently in the UK and Ireland to try and identify exactly what is going on. What are the successful innovators doing well? And why are the other organisations struggling? We identified a set of what we called innovation champions. These are organisations that have routinely turned their innovation investments into accelerated growth and as a result are outperforming their peers in the market. And it helps to put some of this into context if you start with the premise that most traditional organisations are actually set up to kill innovation. Our clients' businesses have been very successful for, successful for many years doing exactly what they do. Doing it in a particular way, with a particular set of measures, with a particular way of working. And many organisations are successful precisely because they are able to manage that risk and unpredictability and remove it from the organisation. The financial markets like stability, makes people feel comfortable. But to innovate, you have to get uncomfortable. And believe me, pivoting a business is incredibly uncomfortable. Imagine someone pitching a business idea to you that is for a market that only exists in their mind. That's quite difficult to allocate money to. And the corporate antibodies that exist in every large corporation that have been built up to protect the business will immediately swoop in and attack such ideas, especially if they believe that it's going to cannibalise existing business. So it's essential to recognise this and then build a construct that will actually allow innovation to thrive rather than to be killed. So what does that look like? We found that these innovation champions typically did two things better than their peers. Firstly, they created a set of processes around innovation. They had a clear strategy, they built a culture that would help reward innovation, and they created something we call an innovation architecture, which is essentially a set of um, processes that take something from an idea or a concept all the way through to scale. And then secondly, they've recognised a series of traits or practices that enable innovation. And they've worked hard to embed them in their organisation, not just in their innovation function, but, but across the organisation. And we call those innovation practices. And I've just got one slide just to help people keep track as I go through. Um, so I'll expand on some of these. So let me start with innovation strategy, part of that innovation by design piece. What is the organisation trying to use innovation for? Should it be focused around their core business or should it be focused on their new? What would success look like and how would it be measured? A new set of metrics will be essential, but how will they be designed? What's the most important thing to get right? 
and how will innovation support the overall strategy of the organisation? It is extremely surprising to me how many organisations haven't answered some of those fundamental questions before they spin up an innovation function and start throwing money at it to spend. And the result from that is normally a, a sort of unfocused set of ideas that get generated um, or a load of experimentation with cool tech just because it exists without producing the growth or the return that are hoped for. Another element um, that they do well is around culture. I'm sure many of you will heard, have heard of the expression that culture eats strategy for breakfast or culture trumps strategy every time. And this is particularly true in the area of innovation. From what I've seen, all organisations have a kind of old guard. And I'm sure you can picture them all. And given the title of this talk, I suspect there won't be very many of them um, in this room. Because these are the people who've been very successful operating the way that they always have. They don't see the need for change. They don't have the appetite for it. They don't have the energy for it. They don't see the value. They don't see the necessity. They are cynical and disparaging about all these new fangled approaches and the new office layout, you know, with the ping pong tables and the table football and the fact that jeans and trainers and now the new accepted dress codes, they're the naysayers that stand to one side. And depending on their level in an organisation, they can put a huge drag on any innovation efforts. They're part of those corporate antibodies. And it can be particularly problematic if they're in leadership positions. Under the banner of culture, I would include many things. Firstly, leadership alignment is essential. Is the full leadership team really bought into doing things in a different way? Does it have CEO backing? What will happen if it starts to cannibalise existing business? I did some work recently with the innovation hub for a high street bank and they were looking at open banking regulations and how they could enable new services for their customers. And they were full of ideas about how these new data sources could provide value for customers by giving them more insight into their spending patterns. And they felt that they could give more transparency around products that could help them, both from them as a provider and from the market but they were already predicting the resistance they were going to get from the head of loans, who was worried about his quarterly loan numbers and would protect them at all costs. And that really illustrates the challenge if the full leadership team aren't bought in to what's going on. Also under the banner of culture, I would be thinking about how to operate across silos. Every organisation of a decent size has silos. <clears throat> and so it's essential to think about how an innovation team will operate across them. Because if this is not done, the concept simply won't be able to scale. I did some work with a bit different bank um, a few years ago, and they wanted to reinvent their mortgage process to make it more customer focused and a lot less complex. 
And right at the start, they were already sort of teeth sucking about risk and compliance aren't going to let us do X and they won't let us do Y. And then, oh, God, the path to live, you know, the IT department won't let us do all of this stuff. But then they got senior people from all of those departments involved in the process. And they were told that they would be measured on the success of this project. Now, they were only able to do that because, you know, the senior leaders in the organisation could see that this was an essential pilot for ways of working for the bank for the future. But as a result of that cross-silo working and genuine leadership buy-in, they were able to get a fundamentally different mortgage application process into live in just 13 weeks. And this was unheard of for this organisation. And then my final example under the banner of culture, I would be thinking about whether there needs to be a, con a con sorry, conscious effort to change attitudes and behaviours. And I'll give you an example. We talk about failing fast a lot when we talk about innovation, or learning fast as we've uh, rebadged it. Um, but are organisations actually any good at it? Will the naysayers have an absolute field day with any failure because they knew it was never going to work anyway? Or can leadership change how experiments are viewed? I spent some time in the innovation hub for a fuels retail business. And as the lead talked me through all these concepts that they'd come up with, it struck me that he was actually as proud of the concepts that they'd shelved as he was of the ones that they'd taken um, into scale and successfully launched. And the reason for that pride was that they'd been prepared to take the decisions quickly. They'd experimented with the concept, and it seemed like a really cool idea at the time. They were all very excited about it. But then they'd learn what customers did and didn't like, and they'd understood a lot more about the technical complexity of the path to live and the path to scale. And then they'd been prepared to take tough decisions in a radically reduced time frame. And so they saw it as a cheap way to learn rather than as a failure. And that is a really important shift if companies want to try something new. Now, if that all sounds like quite a lot to get right, it's because it is. <laughs> And from what I see, um, you know, innovation is, is actually a huge change programme. And most organisations radically underestimate um, how hard they'll have to work and how much they'll have to spend to get the elements right for success. At Accenture, we've been on our own journey. And this is our wise pivot. And it started about seven years ago when we identified what our own new was. We could see that our traditional business of systems integration and business process outsourcing was under pressure. And we could also see that our new markets and our new growth would come from digital technologies and innovation. And so we embarked on our own wise pivot and we have relentlessly pursued it. And when I say that, I realise that it in no way portrays just some of the effort and the pain that we've gone through um, over the last seven years. And we've had failures along the way, as well as having successes. Our pivot has involved significant investments in our core business, 
um, through automation and artificial intelligence, as well as big investments in our new. We've invested hugely in retraining our people. We spent a billion dollars globally on training last year alone. We've had to come overcome our own corporate antibodies. That's why I know so much about the old guard. And over the years, we've had to make tough decisions about people who weren't or you know, didn't want to, couldn't or wouldn't make the shift to the new. And we've elevated the people who've really embraced it. Our acquisition trail has fundamentally shifted the balance of work that we do. We've spent five billion US dollars on over a hundred acquisitions over the last five years. And they have had a huge, well, sorry, and they have helped us um, to move to, the, to our new um, in a time frame that just wouldn't have been possible if we'd tried to do it organically. And they've also had a huge and positive impact um, on our culture and how we're seen by the market. Our market capitalization has nearly doubled over the last five years. And we're now the biggest digital agency in the world. That's not bad for a seven-year journey. So that was that first pillar, the whole innovation by design. But the second thing that innovation champions did well was around this idea of innovation practices. So these are essentially just a set of capabilities or ways of working that are fundamental to innovation, but the best organisations adopt them all around their business. And I think the Spanish bank BBVA is one of the best examples I've seen of an organisation that demonstrates almost all of these practices. And so I'll finish by using their story to highlight and illustrate a few of them. Now, for those of you that don't know about BBVA, it's Spain's second largest bank, um, and it's a global financial services player. And even though its history dates back to 1857, the bank is firmly focused on being a disruptor in the financial services sector, both now and in the future. They've been on a transformation journey since 2007. Now, one of the first things that they did was invest heavily in technology. So this idea of being technology propelled. They invested early in a modern technology platform that allows them to develop new products and services really rapidly, which means they can be very responsive to market demands. In fact, they've also changed how they develop products. So they've got a rapid process to come up with ideas, create prototypes, and then get things in front of customers quickly. So now they can release services at the speed of a startup. Over half of their customers are now digital first. And their mobile app has been rated by Forrester as the best mobile banking app in the world for two consecutive years. Another thing they've done incredibly well is to tap into the power of the network. So they've cultivated an ecosystem of organisations around them that they can tap into as they need to. They've been the most active acquirer of fintech startups globally over the last five years. They're estimated to have spent over a billion dollars over that time, <coughs> including being the largest single shareholder in Atom Bank, which was the UK's first digital-only bank and one of the fastest-growing fintech, start fintech startups across Europe. And they're also very open to partnership with the tech giants. 
In Mexico, the banking services that Uber offers to its drivers are actually provided by BBVA. The organization is convinced that in the future, their competition will come from the likes of Amazon and Google, and they want to be ready. They've also been very focused on being data-driven. So one of the most significant competitive advantages that banks have is the huge volumes of historic customer data that they have access to. While 78% of UK adults might have access to Facebook, 97% have some sort of banking product. That represents a huge amount of potential. The BBVA CEO states time and time again the importance of being a data-driven organisation. But what does that actually mean? <coughs> For banks, it means getting access to the huge swathes of data that they have, making sure that it's clean and reliable, and then using it to gain insight about their customers that in turn can lead to the creation of more relevant and personalised products. The digital revolution has led to this explosion in the volumes of data that can be accessed and then combined with other data sources to give unique insight into customer behaviour. This is something that the challenger banks do particularly well. Monzo is famous for finding ways to save its customers money um, by looking at their spending habits and BBVA see this potential too. They're unusual. Instead of thinking about how the big tech firms are going to be a challenge or a threat to them, their mindset is about how they, can think, how they use their access to data as their competitive advantage and be a threat to the big tech firms, particularly at a time when trust in tech firms and how they use our data is probably at an all-time low. And then finally, I'd call out their investment in talent. In a recent survey of global CEOs, about three quarters of them said that the search for key skills was the single biggest threat that they had to their business. And every organisation is after the same skills. And so a focus on the talent that you already have in your business has to be essential um, part of any strategy. BBVA have understood this and were recently recognised in the Digital Talent Awards for the efforts that they've made around their huge cultural and talent change that they undertook with their workforce. They reskilled their entire team in agile methods, design thinking and data literacy. They claim to have 30,000 people working in an agile way. For a traditional organisation, I mean, that is huge. And they now work in what they call multidisciplinary teams, where every team member has a unique specialism that they bring to the team. And they're given customer challenges to focus on. And then they're empowered to go and make decisions. Remember that mortgage example that I talked about? This is their standard way of working, and they do it without the need for leadership intervention. So I hope that's given you a sense of the imperative facing all organisations today. The fourth industrial revolution is now a reality and it is definitely here. And with it brings disruption in every industry sector. And that disruption will be continual and inevitable.
organizations cannot afford to stand still. They need to be constantly thinking about this idea of efficiency gains in their core business and how that frees up investment capital to invest in their new. And how this will become a repeating cycle over time as the new becomes the core and then they need to be thinking about their next new. And this ability to successfully innovate at scale is an essential part of this. Shifting from a structure that's been designed for incremental improvements to one prepared to be bold, to experiment, to take risks, to fail but to learn. These are the capabilities that will be essential in the successful organisations of the future. The ones that will stay in the FTSE 100 and thrive across the pond. Thank you for your attention. Arabelle, thank you very much. That was phenomenal. Um, tremendously thoughtful and phenomenally well laid out as well. Thank you very much for that. Uh, look, I was feeling uncomfortable myself when you were talking about some of the things that, that, that organisations feel. Um, we've got some time for, for some questions and answers. So um, in the time-honoured way, if, if anyone's got a question, please raise their hand and we'll get a microphone to you. Um, so, questions. There's one perhaps at the very back initially, and then I'll come down this way. Please keep your hands high so I can, I can make sure I can keep you in scope. And please, when you get the microphone, tell us who you are and who you represent. Uh, my name is David Pinchard. I'm a managing director of a company called uh, Transformation Leaders. Arabelle, that was a great presentation. Thank you very much. Very stimulating. Um, if I could wave a magic wand, what would be a perfect client for you that you haven't got yet? <laughs> One that listens. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> One that has ambition, actually, and is realistic about the effort that they need to put into transforming in the way that they need to. I, I think, you know, our clients have been on a journey. We, we've seen lots of them developing these little innovation hubs and trying to do stuff. And I think, I think they're now at the stage where they're realising if they're really serious about it and the innovations are really going to get to scale, they're going to have to think about it in a different way. And, you know, understanding that, you know, consultancies aren't evil. You know, we are actually there to help. We can bring something to the party. And we're not just always trying to sell the next thing, sell the next thing. We're genuinely trying to help organisations change. You know, that's our mission in life. Um, and, and so being prepared to open the door, listen, take the help where they can get it, um, and also be building their own skills as they go, which, you know, most of our clients are very keen um, to do, but, but are often unrealistic about how quickly they can do it. Okay, well, if it was in, uh, in our very sclerotic uh, state of 800 billion that's spent in the public sector, uh, have you had any successes in the public sector? Uh, yes, we have, actually. Um, so we've had, I mean, I, I can't really talk about specific government departments, but, but we work across a number of government departments all of whom actually are on their own innovation journeys at various different stages. 
So there is one that's got this innovation function that they're just chucking money at and that you don't really seem to have a proper innovation strategy. Um, but then there's another that actually have gone through that phase already and now they're in the stage of maturing it and kind of going, right, actually, how do we get the innovation hub properly embedded in each of the lines of business within the government department so that what they're doing is not the experiments with cool tech and, you know, have you seen what artificial intelligence can do and all that kind of stuff. It's actually aligned with specific business challenges that those different lines of business are facing. And benefit to the taxpayer. <laughs> I mean, yeah. huge benefit. Joking is like, you know, huge benefit to the taxpayer because it can take just significant cost out of just the operation of all of these huge government departments. So, so absolutely benefit to the taxpayer. Great. Thank you very much. Okay. Next question was down here a little bit in the middle. Anyone else, please do put your hand up so we can see you. Hi, Keith Campbell from Make UK. We represent the manufacturing industry in the UK. I was just interested to understand what sort of proportion of uh, revenue and human capital should an organisation, if it's really going to go for a, a proper look at innovating its services that have been delivered the same way for many years. What, what sort of proportions should an organisation be looking at I mean, if they're going to do a proper job of it? And when you say in human capital, what are you talking about investing in the workforce and the skills of the workforce, or if I missed um, your question? No, literally just the, 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 the people who are actually going to be... Strategy. Uh, so, how many, what level of, so how many people should be focused on doing that versus delivering the call? Just well, shout, I can... If you've got a, an organisation that's got a thousand people yeah. in it, you know, two people, a hundred, ten... You know, it, I mean, it's a really sort of weaselly answer, but, but it really genuinely does depend. You know, and that, that piece I talked about at the beginning about levels of disruption currently and then future disruption and that predictability of how quickly industries will get disrupted, that's different for every industry. And so... It, you know, it, it really depends how quickly you think these new entrants are going to be coming in and so how quickly you need to pivot your business to whatever the new is going to be. Because, you know, there are industries with really high barriers to entry. You know, if you think about the oil industry with their oil rigs, you know, I mean, that isn't something that someone can come and disrupt particularly quickly. Um, but then there are others, like we've seen in the banking industry, where actually, you know, the barriers to entry have, have lowered massively. So, so it really does depend. I mean, I'd say it's not too um, but it's probably not a thousand or, you know, all of the people in the organisation. But it's that balance. That's exactly what I'm talking about with that wise pivot of what is the timing to kind of shift your attention from what you do currently and driving efficiency in that into the future and actually putting all of your eggs in the future basket because you can see that the revenues from the existing stuff are really starting to drop off. So, so it does depend. Okay, thank, thank you. And is it better to do something rather than nothing, or are you? My view. I mean, just because of that point that every industry is being disrupted, my view is you've got to be doing something because you've got to be readying yourself for whatever it is. And and you know, if you think that disruption's further out, fine, but it is coming because I don't think any industry is going to be completely immune um, from this. Thank you. The next question, unfortunately, is right over here. So uh, when, when you do get the microphone, could you please move it along quite quickly? Otherwise, we'll spend a lot of time waiting for the microphone. So there's one there, and then there's one over here as well. John Collins, ex-UA Business School. Should management consider the negative stress caused by change? And if so, how? 
So, I mean, yes to the first answer. Yeah. I mean, obviously, of course, they have to, to think about that. I mean, there's a whole host of ways. Uh, you know, what we've done in our organisation is just a huge amount of communication, actually, so that people are really clear um, that actually this is the way our business is going. And actually, we've been very clear about, you know, if you want to be on the journey with us, here's what you need to learn about, you know, and here's the direction. So we've supported our staff in that shift. There will always be some people that just kind of go, you know what, <laughs> just sounds like too much like hard work. Yeah, and those are the people who typically have kind of opted out. But actually, I mean, we're lucky in our organisation just because the types of people we recruit, you know, they, they want to learn, you know, they're, they're hungry and thirsty for knowledge. And they always want to be doing the kind of next interesting thing. Um, so, so, yes, and I think you have to support, you can't just kind of expect them to change and not be really clear about what that path is, not be providing the education um, that they need and the support that they need. Because, you know, all organisations have got to do this pivot for their staff because there just aren't enough of these new skills out there. You know, every single client we talk to says, right, I've got a talent problem, <laughs> so what am I going to do about it? First thing they're thinking about is, well, how do I go to the market to recruit? They're kind of like, well, okay, but the last 100 people that we talked to also thought that. So, you know, why are people going to come and work for you versus a different large corporate? Um, and so, really, you've got to focus on the people that you've got in your organisation and how you change their skills. And have young staff. As opposed to old ones. So I am not young, but, but I have done it. It is possible. You know, you just need the motivation and the interest. And, and actually, it's about, it's about curiosity and mindset. It, it's not, I called them the old guard. I didn't mean they're old. I just meant they're the, you know, the ones who've been around for a while and don't want to change. You know, we, we haven't found that in our, our organisation. And, and I'm a great example of that. There was a question at the end over there. Thanks. It's Lee Birch at Pegasystems. It was interesting the uh, case of Mothercare that you raised at the start, that you viewed that as a, as a good example of an organisation that have failed. Should you know, not though, kind of spin that on its head and look at that as an example of an organisation who successfully pivoted? Because while the UK operation has been shut down and are focusing on the much more profitable um, international side of the business? I mean, it's a way of looking at it. I was at an event gosh, maybe three years ago now, while Mothercare, you know, the CEO of Mothercare was talking about the journey that they were on. And, and you know, that wasn't what, where they were hoping to get to. You know, they were hoping to survive and thrive as a UK-based, you know, operation, um, delivering and su supplying products to UK-based people. So, so for sure, you know, there's a profitable part of their business and they're going after that. I, I do wonder if they missed the market here. You know, I had my kids a number of years ago now, but, you know, Mothercare were a really key part of that. And, yeah, I, I just think they, they, they had the potential um, and I don't think they acted on it fast enough. I, I, think, I think when you're in that situation and starting a young family, you actually do want to go to a store and talk to people and all that stuff. So I, I, I do think they, they missed the market a little bit. We've got time for just a couple more questions. There's one just there. Sorry, you're leaving it a bit late, putting your hands up, I'm afraid. <laughs> Hi, uh, Tristan Rowcliffe from Trade Recruitment. Um, you've talked a lot about innovation from a very sort of business-wide holistic level. Um, from a technology perspective, which is clearly a massive driver nowadays, is there any disrupting technologies that you're seeing customers from Accenture perspective um, look towards as the source of, I suppose, their innovation more so than others? Um, I mean... Big data and artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, all of the analytical insight that you can get from data is 
the single biggest thing because you know all of these big corporates are looking to the huge swathes of data they've got and kind of going there's got to be some competitive advantage in there if I can just get into it and understand it. And then, of course, part of the, the big efficiency gain piece is all about how can they use data to automate a lot of their processes so that they can free up staff to start thinking about you know, some of that new stuff. Um, so that's probably the single biggest one. I mean, all others, to be honest. And you know, I'm, much, I'm always talking to clients about try and think about the business problem that you're trying to solve before you start thinking about the technology, inevitably, we always get the questions of like, all right, well, I've heard about blockchain. How could I incorporate it into my business? So, you know, it's much more sort of tech-led than business problem-led. Um, but, you know, we, we get both elements of it. I mean, it's all, it's, you know, augmented reality and virtual reality, blockchain, big data, you know, all of the things that you, you would expect, to be honest. Um, but data, probably the single biggest one at the moment. Very last question. There was a hand up here somewhere in the middle. No. Oh, we're actually. Let women ask a question. Come it's on. Just, 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 the women asking questions. Just over here, in fact. Yeah, if you put your hands up early, that way I can actually see you and direct things. But if you leave them to the end, it gets a bit tricky. But yes, one in the middle here. No, actually, it was further down. <laughs> sorry. Oh, hand on the mic. Uh, so it's early and often. That's the way these things have to go. <laughs> So, uh, Katie Yardley, I'm here um, working at the Defence Academy at the moment. Um, it strikes me that in order for our businesses to be successful, we need our country to be successful. And as a country, we're very much an old guard country. Are there any ways that any of the consultancies are looking at the structure of the country to be able to pivot? Um, and, and no, it just, I mean, is that innovation? being sold centrally somewhere because we have got the old guard in our processes and it's where we can go long term as a country. Oh, when you talk about old guard in that context, what do you, what do you refer well, just, to? We're very traditional and if you compare us to the Chinese, for example, they have pivoted and being very innovative in the way that they're develop, developing their silk roads or whatever they're calling them now and... Well, I don't, know. I don't know what other people think. I, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that. I mean, yes, we've got a lot of historic stuff, but, but I, see, I see the country and I see the government sponsoring lots of stuff that I find really encouraging, actually. You know, they're very active in, you know, just how do we increase the amount of R&D that happens here, you know, and how do we think about productivity gains and, you know, using technology to boost our not very great <laughs> productivity levels. You know, and then lots of investment in these tech hubs around the country to try and decentralise out of London. So, you know, I actually I'm, I take a slightly different view. I'm slightly more encouraged um, by by what I see um, from government actually. No, and really actually, some of our government clients, because there, there was a question up there about government departments, <laughs> some of them are way ahead on some of this stuff, particularly the technology platforms they're using. You know, we've got a project on at the moment, and all my team really want to be on it because they're, they're just the most um, advanced users of AWS, you know, of all of our client base. So, you know, I, I'm quite encouraged by what I see. Given that she had her hand on the mic, I think it's only fair if we do give <laughs> the opportunity for a question. Back to you. I, I slightly fear this might be another presentation, but um, I'm Rebecca Burton. <laughs> if it is, we'll skip over it. I'm Rebecca Burton. I'm the regional director for the National Trust in the Southwest. And um, thank you for your presentation. I thought it was really interesting. Um, 
You talked about strategy, uh, culture, and you talked a bit more about culture, but you also talked about, about architecture. I was just interested in just getting a few words around the architecture and, and, and what kinds of architecture do you think lead to innovation in organisations? Oh, the innovation architecture. Mm, um, yeah. Well, I can talk very... Um, I can try and talk briefly about what we've done in Accenture because we've developed what we call our innovation architecture for Accenture. And it's basically all the different bits or capabilities that you need to have to be able to innovate successfully. So, you know, we have a research function. A lot of the research that I was quoting has come out of our research function because they're looking at the market, you know, looking for, for areas of opportunity. Um, we have our R&D group and they're the ones who take all the new funky technologies and try to think about business applications of them. Um, we have a set of innovation centres where we work with clients to, to sort of co-create on problems where you can bring business problems and technology together. Um, we have some other pieces, but then we also have, you know, how you would scale innovation. So, you know, we still have our heritage and our large kind of offshore delivery centres. Well, actually, that's the great way to then take innovations and really be able to take them to scale. So, you know, it's all of those different bits that help you along that innovation journey. Actually, I should have mentioned our ventures and ecosystems piece as part of that as well, because one thing I didn't talk about in my talk is about, you know, organisations shouldn't think that they have to do everything they themselves. They really need to be tapping into the wider ecosystem, you know, which is what we've done if you think about our journey and all our acquisitions. If we try to do all that stuff organically, we'd still be at it now. You know, we'd never have made the progress that we have. So through, you know, partnerships and through acquisitions, just thinking about actually how do you bring in the, the capabilities and the, the skills that you need and some of the assets that you need as well. Um, so, so, so it's all of those different bits. And it's a lot, you know, it's a lot to get right end to end to really be able to get those innovations to scale. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, can you... <laughs> It's an interesting question, and again, I can talk about what we're doing in Accenture. You know, for me, innovation is all of those bits, but, but it's also about a set of processes and a mindset about how you do things, and not always having the answer, being prepared to take a risk, you know, experimenting with things. And so we're on our own cultural change program within Accenture. We've got this new methodology that we use that we're rolling out across the firm. And it's part of that, you know, what I was talking about before, you know, just changing the skill set of the people that we have within our organization. So while, you know, the common journey that I see is you start with an innovation function over here and you get your experts in there, you get the thing up and running but then you'll never scale it if you don't have some route into the rest of the business because you'll just hit problems every time with risk and compliance, with the IT department, you know, all of those things that I mentioned. So, so now we're trying to be much more open about how we do innovation and second people in from all of the other bits because it helps build skills, it helps spread the message into the wider organisation. And once people have kind of come in and kind of drunk the Kool-Aid, they're like, oh, this stuff is great, this is how I want to work all the time. And that's exactly what we want. We're trying to be the kind of catalyst to infect that in enthusiasm out into the rest of the business. Arabel, thank you so much. And uh, thank you very much for the questions. Um, before we call a halt to the proceedings, and, and, and I invite you all upstairs for some refreshments. I'd just like to say thank you once more and to offer you a little something of a, a measure of our esteem. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah.
for coming to talk to us. Lovely. It's It's been fantastic. Thank you. For more information on the Bristol Lectures series, including details on how you can attend, visit uwe.ac.uk forward slash Bristol Lectures or follow the hashtag Bristol Lectures.